Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi there, and thanks for joining us. Today, I'm going to share with you a conversation that I recently had with Tony Kitchens. Tony is a board member of the Georgia Center for Opportunity. He is also the Georgia Field Director for Prison Fellowship. He has in the past worked with the Georgia Governor's Office of Transition, Support, and Reentry, the Georgia Department of Corrections, and the Georgia Department of Community Supervisions. I think Tony would also want you to know, and you will hear him talk about it in this conversation, that he is someone who was formerly incarcerated. He has been out of prison for 37 years. He will talk about that in the conversation. And the reason we wanted to have Tony join us was, well, there are a number of reasons, one of which is that Tony is an inspiring person who has a passion for improving his community and his state. And those are the kind of people we'd love to talk to. But we've also talked to a number of people over the past few months about criminal justice reform and the challenges of increasing crime rates, across the country. And, you know, I hope by now, if you've listened to those podcasts, you are sold on what I believe to be true, that mass incarceration in this country is something that we all need to be thinking about and something that affects us all. And we wanted to talk to Tony because his work, and as you'll hear, his passion is to broaden the conversation and broaden the way we talk about reentry and distinct from that, and you'll hear why this is an important distinction, reintegration. Tony has, I think, a unique perspective on this and has thought a great deal about it. And I think we can all be inspired by his story and by the work he's doing. But I think we can all learn a lot, uh, not just for the challenges our communities face in terms of reentry and reintegration, but also for our day-to-day lives. I don't I think you're going to find as you listen to this conversation that the way Tony thinks about things applies for all of us, for all of us who care about the communities we live in, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Let me thank you, Tony, for taking the time to be with us, because like most of the people we talk to on the podcast, you are a very busy person, I know. If you would, could you tell our listeners about a little bit about yourself and the organizations you work with, and not just the work that you do, but what is your passion, your calling and your passion? Okay, that's, that's, a, that's a great question, Jennifer. First of all, my passion is focusing on processes that deal with self-edification in terms of how much do you bring to the change process. And and so over the years, I've worked in many sides of the reintegration business or reentry business, as most people know it. I've worked, I've myself was a formerly incarcerated individual and I exited the penitentiary system in January of 1985. And in that experience, I've learned a lot about the difference between reentry and community integration. And so I've worked with the governor's office of transit support and reentry here in Georgia. I've also worked with the Department of Community Supervision, which is the department that 
regulates, or I should say, should I should say supervises a person's supervision. I've also been fortunate enough to work with the Department of Corrections on the other side of the ball, and also working with Prison Fellowship as a field director. So I get to look at it from a uh, spiritual component. I'm also a board member with the Georgia Center for Opportunity. And that allows me to look at it from a policy side. So I can mm -hmm. say that I've seen this from different angles. And the one thing that I'm very passionate about is choices, or I should say free will. Mm -hmm. So I want to hear more about that, but I'm going to back up a little bit because you said a number of different things there. And, and just to give you some background about some of the conversations we've had recently, you know, we have talked to a number of people about the problem of mass incarceration, the sheer number of people mm -hmm. who are incarcerated in the United States. And in every case, when we are talking to people about that, it's impossible to ignore the the fact that with so many people incarcerated, there are going to be people who are coming out of incarceration. And you made a distinction there between reentry and reintegration. Mm -hmm. And I think one, we definitely want to talk about why there's a why that's an important difference in, in what the differences are. But two, I also think that for our listeners to understand the scale of this issue, right? Like on a day-to-day -day basis, it's not just a few people who are leaving incarceration. Every week, every month, there are thousands and tens of thousands of people who are coming out of jails and prisons. And as I've heard you describe it in some of the things I looked at to prepare for this, you talked, you distinguished re-entry as something that means you come out of incarceration, right? And so re-entry could entail getting out of prison and living under a bridge, that's re-entry. Reintegration is what you're focused on and that's very different. Can you talk about the difference? Well, as you said, re-entry is a process. The re-entry process focuses on the things that you need when you're coming out of penitentiary, such as, such as safety and security, which is typically employment, housing, things of that nature, things that sustains you connection to your family or connection to your church or community or significance as to where, who are you now that you've been through this, in this prison experience, who are you? What do you now fit in this whole fabric of the community? And so that's all involved in a re-entry process. Now understand that the re-entry process also starts inside the prison system where you have programs, you have a lot of things that deals with the person's, um, what we call in prison fellowship, good citizenship. And so we focus a lot on the academy, which has the six core values of productivity, responsibility, integrity, community, affirmation, and restoration. So those are the things that we focus on inside the prison. Now, however, now remember, we're still in the reentry process. The person still hadn't reached society at this point. And so in that reentry process, they're in the process of becoming. So when we say returning citizen, remember returning is, is a word that says, I'm in the process of becoming. Mm. So they're in the process of returning back to the community. And once they're in the community, understand that they're now moving from, if you had a, if you had a, a line and you had a, a line in the middle of that line, you had zero. Mm -hmm. On the left side of that line, you had negative one, negative two, negative three. And on the right side will be positive one, positive two, positive three. 
Well, reentry brings a person back to the zero, back to mm. par. Mm. See? Yeah. In that reentry process. And the community reintegration process moves down the continuum, such as things like emotional intelligence, self-acceptance, uh, helping a person to move to what we call, what I call mental freedom. Because there's two prisons. There's the physical prison, and then there's the mental prison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wanna I wanna talk in detail, because I think this is something that many people will not get from looking at statistics or reading about this. I want to talk in detail about the challenges someone faces in that process. But before we get to that, you talked about how the process begins while someone is still incarcerated. Um, and I assume it, the process is likely to be more successful because of work done before someone is released from prison or from jail. Is it true that all, all states everywhere around the country, or to your knowledge, is it true that every um, prison or jail would have some kind of programming internally before someone is released that is intended to help them prepare? Or is that just people who are lucky get that? No, I think that most of your prison systems at this point have some type of reentry program. Okay. Um, they have some type of reentry program. However, those programs are different sure. across the board. Yeah, that makes sense. And so that's why when I when I come back and I look at what is the common thread in these programs, what is the common thread in a person moving from reentry to community reintegration, and that common thread is oftentimes choices of free will. You see? Yeah. And so we can unpack that a little bit more as it relates to because I'm also certified as a choice theory coach. Where I, where I apply choice theory principles on in my journey from reentry to successful mental freedom. So what does that mean? Tell me about that, because I'm not familiar with choice theory coaching. Like, how does that apply specifically in, in your case or in someone else's case? Well, choice theory, choice theory is a discipline that focuses on what do you bring to the table? It focuses a lot on yourself. While well, we can wait around for people to do things for us in terms of dealing with the collateral consequences of incarceration. For example, there are people in organizations that deal with the laws that's, that's surrounding incarceration. But what do you as the individual do in the meantime? What do you do while that's being done? When you can't get a job, what do you do in, in the meantime? How do you process that information? How do you make decisions around where you are rather than where you could be. How do you do that? So choice theory focuses a lot on making those decisions in a way to where you continuously move down the continuum as you begin to move towards a mental freedom process. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So this is something that I can imagine it would be easy to be discouraged when you find yourself in a position of having difficulty getting employment, right? And one response to that could be the economy, the system, all these things are working against me. I'm just, I'm paralyzed because there's nothing I can do because there's all these things working against me. It sounds like what you're saying is whatever's happening externally from us we have to be thinking about what we do and how we control to the extent that we can control things, how we bring ourselves to a point where we're actually exercising some 
direction over these things. And the more of that we do, the more free we become mentally and I assume physically as well, yes? That is correct. When we talk about the word responsibility, responsibility has the word response in it. And we say the ability to respond. And so when you're dealing with circumstances, choice theory, we focus on what is my ability to respond to that? I don't have to respond the way that I would typically respond, but I have a choice in how I respond, you say, as I, as I set my responsibility. And so understanding how that plays in the, in the whole narrative of the incarceration experience is what I do as a choice theory coach, focusing on how do you leverage where that person is while you have organizations that's dealing with things like collateral consequences, you have organizations that's dealing with food, clothing, and shelter. Mm-hmm. You have all these different organizations that deal with these things from a, from a perspective of doing for the individual rather than doing with the individual. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes a huge difference, I would imagine, in, in thinking about it that way. So let's go back to the point about the kinds of things that people face when they are are going through re-entry, but going towards reintegration. Is that fair to say going through re-entry towards yeah. reintegration? Mm-hmm. So I want to, I want to step back just briefly and say, so I know we've talked again um, on the podcast previously in our newsletter about the issue of mass incarceration. And I think when it comes to whatever people's political point of view is, the fact of the matter is that as a society, we have to concern ourselves with all tens and thousands, tens of thousands of people who are moving from one part of their lives when they're incarcerated to the next part of their lives. And so what we need to focus on is once somebody is being released, how do we ensure that that person, whatever, whatever brought them to that point previously, becomes uh, a, you talked about citizenship, you know, um, becomes a person who feels integrated in their community, feels like a productive part of their community, and feels like they can exercise those choices and that freedom you're talking about. What are some of the challenges that somebody faces, whether they've been incarcerated for five years or 10 years or 20 years when they come out? Because I think that's something, again, if we look at statistics, that doesn't help us understand the mindset somebody faces or the mindset somebody has when they've been incarcerated for 20 years. The world has changed. Yes. Well, when you say incarcerated for the five years, three years, 10 years, you still get a life sentence because you still have to deal with the collateral consequences of that incarceration experience, such as not being able to get a job, not just a job, but get a sustainable job, not being able to live in certain places that is more thriving, a community that is more supportive. Um, For example, you've heard people say things like, uh, change your playground, change your playmate, change your play things. Well, first of all, that costs money to do that. Mm-hmm. Second of all, if you can't change your playground, you're not able to live in a certain place because of a criminal record. How do you change your how do you change your environment? And that's where we focus in, in terms of as cho- choice theory coaches, we focus on how do you be where you are and still be okay with that? Because 
while there are organizations that deal with the collateral consequences, we cannot sit around and wait on that legislative process. We can't wait on that. It's going to happen. Like, for example, I've been out of prison now for 30, January will be 37 years. And imagine me waiting all of that time for time to change or for laws to change. You say, yeah, yeah. I could do that. You say, yeah. <laughs> you'd be like, put it, your life would be put on hold. You wouldn't be living, right? I mean, that is you'd, correct. Be, you'd be existing, but you wouldn't be living. And that's the key word, exactly, when you say existing. And that is that is that is the mindset of so many of those who are who are coming from a prison experience is that they're existing because there's they really don't know what to do in many cases. Again, when we talk about the reentry process, a person is coming out of prison is focused on the main thing they're focused on is safety and security. Hmm. That is the number one thing they're focused on. And I say it this way. A man that is hungry will not hear a sermon. Hmm. He won't hear that. So we have to help them where they are, because you mentioned the you mentioned earlier about Larry even mm-hmm. in, the, in the movie where you saw him struggling with the mouse. Well, that has to do with safety and security of understanding his environment where he currently is now. You see? Yeah, absolutely. And so so that's when we focus a lot on the reentry process. Because sometimes we think the reentry process is the end goal, but yeah. the reentry process is only the beginning of the whole process of community integration. Yeah, and and I can also imagine that there could there, I could imagine being frustrated with um, this is going to sound really pejorative, and I'm sorry, but like do-gooders, right? People who say, "Okay, I see there's a challenge there. I want to help out. Let me." work for you you made the distinction between for and with let me work for um people who are re-entering let me make sure and and thinking about it not as a transition um maybe as a challenge but thinking about someone as uh, i'm i'm going to relate this back to a discussion we had i'd had previously with somebody who ran a homeless shelter who said listen if you look at people as problems to be solved don't be surprised when they don't want your help right? Exactly. Exactly. So I, in addition to all of the things that need to be considered and thought of in order to make that transition from re-entry to well-being and reintegration, also kind of navigating the people who want to help, but don't know how, and maybe don't want to listen about how to help and have their own idea of, I'm going to help. Let me bring this let me bring all my skills to you. You know, this sort of paternalistic way of thinking about help. That's not helping somebody who's trying to get to the point of choice and freedom. That's correct. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. If you went to a doctor and he told you, he said, that you had to take the red pill or the blue pill. And he's, you've met him for the first time. Which pill would you take? And I have no other information. You have no other information. I would try and run away, actually. <laughs> well, that's, that's, kind of what, that's kind of what people do when you're trying to help them and they don't have enough information. Yeah. To give you a case, another case in point, I remember, I remember when I was leading a class and the lady came in, she was crying. And so I stopped the class and I went to talk with her while she was crying. She said on her way to the meeting, God spoke to her to 
go and help this homeless lady on her way out the door. And so she turned around, went back into the house, and she fixed the lady a um, bologna sandwich with mayonnaise. And then the lady, she took the, took the um, bologna sandwich to the lady, the homeless lady. And the homeless lady asked her, did she have chicken? And I said, well, why would she say she, she, up, she, she really was ungrateful. That's what she said. She said yeah. that the homeless lady was ungrateful and it made her feel bad. She said, because here she was trying to do God's work and trying to help them. And I said, well, did you think about maybe the lady might have been allergic to mayonnaise? You say, um, lady, uh, maybe she was allergic to bologna? I don't know. The question becomes asking a person how you can help them. You say, how can you help? And they will oftentimes tell you how you can help. And then you come to that agreement as to what you're prepared to do to help them. Yeah. Rather than always assuming that the person is helpless. They may be in a, they may be in a, a situation where it may seem helpless to you, mm-hmm. but it may be a situation which they're going through to get to another a level in their life. Yeah. 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 And also not ignoring the fact that because someone is in a position that they would rather not be in and you would rather not be in doesn't mean they've lost their other faculties, right? It doesn't mean that they can't think for themselves. It doesn't mean that they don't have preferences. It doesn't mean that they don't have self-respect. That is correct. That they don't have dignity because that's often the, the, in my experience, that is you hear people say things like, I'm not that broke. Mm-hmm. What does that really, what are, they, what are they really saying? They're saying that I might be broke, but I'm, but I'm still somebody. I'm, I still have dignity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we talked about Larry and about how I think Larry had been in jail for 40 years, 42, right? 42. 42 years, 42 years. And, and he went in in 1972, maybe. Is that right? Somewhere in that generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, I mean, I've been alive since 1972. Um, and, you know, how much has changed in 42 years? Like, honestly, I remember as a child sort of being kind of thinking it was humorous that my grandparents didn't know how to use cassette tapes or whatever. My kids don't even know what a cassette tape is. Right. Um, my kids have never been alive when you couldn't use a phone to, to FaceTime and see somebody face to face. That's what they think of as a phone. If you are out of all of that change for all of that time, something as simple as using a mouse, something that we all of us do every day and don't think about mm-hmm. in terms of using technology and all that, that would be all new. And so not only do you have to have to adapt to all that, but also there are things that are routine about experience while being incarcerated that are no longer true. I read some, I think it was something that you had written talking about sound, right? That it's, it's always, uh, it's always loud in prisons and that to be outside of a prison and have quiet would be unsettling for somebody. Correct. That is correct. And so one, that's one example because inside of a prison, it is very noisy and noisy. You get used to that noise. Because in a prison setting, if there's calm or quiet, that means that somebody's think there are things that are going on, a riot, something is about to happen inside of a prison. Well, when you get out of prison and you're in this quiet environment, it's just the opposite. And so mm-hmm. 
you feel unsafe. That's why I said when you first get out of prison, your, your primary concern was safety and security. That's what your primary concern with. And in that prison, in that prison experience, let's take Larry, for example, 42 years of being out of prison. I mean, 42 years of being in prison. Now the question now becomes in his social, as he began to socialize, as he began to move to a community integration process, is he now going to be socialized as a millennium or is it going to be socialized as the person you went into the prison? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of those social constructs, he's going to learn different things, but he's going to have an outside shell of a body of a man that's in his 70s. Yeah. Mine or his or the way he thinks is going to be more of how he's been socialized as he's moving to community integration. And yeah. therein lies sometimes the disconnect because you see the shell of the man who was born in the 70s, but this man is actually being socialized now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I want to be clear that logic, it's not like the case that logically I haven't thought this through, but in the course of our discussion, it is really like kind of hitting me in a, in a much more profound way. Obviously, it is difficult for somebody to re-enter, re-enter society and to re to reintegrate and to, to move to well-being. Obviously, that's difficult. But as you talk about it, I just, it's becoming so much more real to me to think about just how the odds are stacked against someone in ter- and, and how easy it would be to fall into the, well, the odds are stacked against me. I can't succeed, right? And, and fail in all kinds of ways. Can you talk about um, success stories? I mean, I would consider you obviously a success story. I hope you consider yourself a success story. But can you talk about some successes, the things that make it really rewarding for you to do the work that you do, and what what was key to those successes? And you know, um, just when when those odds you can overcome those odds. Well, I could talk about my story in general. Um as a success story, because one of the things that I talk about is the is the second prison, which is the mental prison. My toughest challenge was not, not escaping the prison that was made of concrete and steel. That was not my toughest challenge by no means, mm-hmm. even though I was in prison for 11 years. My prison experience lasted for 11 years. And so that was not the toughest challenge for me. The toughest challenge for me was, was really escaping the prison that I created on my own, which was the mental prison. You know, that was by far the toughest because it was built with the bricks of discrimination, the, the bricks of shame, the bricks of guilt, um, the, you know, the not knowing who I was. That was by far the darkest prison for me. Mm-hmm. And so over the years I had to learn how to embrace my prison experience as part of my whole human experience, as opposed to shunning that experience. Yeah. It was it, that experience, it was what it was. And so how do you embrace that experience? Because it becomes a part of your whole community integration process. So it took a long time to learn that because I had to figure out where I had value. That's why I talk a lot about self-acceptance. And when I'm talking with uh, some of the people that I work and coach with, I talk about a lot about self-acceptance, but you really can't talk about self-acceptance until you focus on safety and security. You say? 
Yeah. So that's why the reentry process is so much different than the community reintegration process, because the reentry process focuses a lot on the immediate need of the person to get them back to zero to where a point to where they can begin to think about who they are, what they bring to the table, you know, how can they accept, accept themselves as they are, how they embrace their prison experience and how they move down the continuum of to well-being. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot to unpack in that. It's a lot to unpack in that area. And so when we say successful, that's another thing. When we say successful, what does that really truly mean? What does that really truly mean to a person if they can't see what success means in terms of what society says success is? You see? Yeah. What's yeah. It, what's it, how do you define it? So if you define success as, as, as a, a house, a picket fence, two dogs, and a cat, you know, so yeah. <laughs> that, they, yeah. may not, they may not be able to get there because they're defining success as to what society tells them success is. But if they're satisfied to a point to where they're, well, they're, they've achieved a level of, of mental freedom and they've achieved a level of well-being, well, then that's successful for them. Yeah. It may not be successful for you, but it may be successful for them. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's, uh, again, I think everything you're describing are things that people regardless of their circumstances, need to think about what is success for you, right? Don't peg it to what somebody else is thinking. And also not living, as you say, with parts of your life that you can't accept as part of your story, even if you would rather they hadn't happened or you would rather not revisit them frequently, they're still a part of who you are. And, you know, having having um, shame over something where you feel like you can't be honest with yourself makes it hard to be honest with other people, makes it hard to, to succeed in the way you're talking about success, I think. Right. So, uh, Tony, I, wanna, I want to make sure, one of the things we like to be very, uh, I think, cognizant of is that the people in our audience are people who are, are, th- are thinkers. They want to think about, you know, ideas and challenges and all these other things. But, you know, we had somebody on recently who talked about there are people who want the world to get better. And then there are the people who actually are going to do something about making the world better. Having discussed what we already did about the problem of, you know, people wanting to help, but not necessarily wanting to listen um, or wanting to help on their own terms. If somebody's sitting on the bus listening to this, or they're in their car and they're going to work and there's somebody who is engaged in their own community they are involved maybe in philanthropic organizations, but they're involved in business, those kinds of things. One, in terms of how people think about reentry and reintegration and how they talk about it, what are some things that would be useful for them to know or to adapt in the way they think and talk about it? And secondly, just in addition to thinking and talking about it, are there things that they can proactively do in their communities to, I mean, I can imagine a person saying, oh yeah, I'm thinking about all this now. Maybe I should go see if I can figure out how to hire somebody because I can make the reintegration process easier, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, like, is that something somebody should be thinking about or should they be stopping thinking, revising the way they talk? And then finding, how do they find people who can tell them how to help successfully? Well, in, in my experience, I'm finding that we, I'm finding that language 
is very important in this conversation. Now, as I said, I've been on the penitentiary for 37 years, all right? And I remember when you, you wouldn't even have this conversation at all. Not a, This conversation was not a conversation to have. So it was not until recently in the last 10 years, really, that we really began to pay a lot of attention to the reentry process. Um, and we certainly have been talking a lot about community integration. And so I've been focusing a lot on trying to expand that language because what I've seen over the years and when the reentry word first came out, I think it was the late nineties when it first came out, many people joined the reentry bandwagon and the community in, in particular joined that, that reentry bandwagon, but everybody's on that side of the ball. Now I want you to imagine if you had a, if you had a football team, you had your offense, and your defense on the football field at the same time. Yeah. You're going to have chaos, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so I've seen the chaos over the years because you got everybody's on the reentry side of the ball. Not many people are talking about community integration. They're talking about reentry, 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 reentry. And again, reentry, you can be successful at reentry by living on the bridge. Right. You see? And so understanding what side of the ball that, that, you find yourself on, whether the, the reentry process, whether you're inside of a prison teaching classes, whether you're inside of a prison and you are part of that reentry process, preparing a person for reentry into society, or whether you are a mentor or a coach and you're focusing on their safety and security, you're focusing on things like housing, jobs, um, you know, those types of things, sustainable things. Or whether you focus in as a reentry coach, you're focusing on connecting them to a religious organization or a church or a family, or you're involved in family reunification. All those things are reentry processes. And so, and then again, when you get that person kind of stable at that point, now you begin to begin to help that person to identify who they are, what do they bring to the table, how do they self, how do they embrace self-acceptance. How do they focus on things like emotional intelligence? How do they how do they begin to have those conversations as they move down the pathway from a physical um, environment of incarceration to their mental addressing their mental incarceration? Because there's no way you can go inside of a prison and not experience some degree of institutionalization. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. So I would love to make sure everybody in our audience knows how to follow the work that you're doing or to follow the work that you're doing and the work that other people and organizations you are excited about are doing. Um, so if they want to learn more, what's the best thing for them to do to find your work and work that other people you respect are doing? One of the best one of the best ways to find what we're doing again, because what I'm doing is is expanding the conversation from reentry to um, community reintegration, and so one of the best things to do is is finding organizations that like Prison Fellowship, for example, that focuses on the academy. The, that we do a lot of things that relates to uh, reentry as relates to the reentry process inside of prison. So that's one way to find out a lot about what we do in terms of the reentry process. I'm also on the board of the Georgia Center for Opportunity, 
where we focuses a lot on the community integration processes. And you can learn a lot more about that as well from the Georgia Center for Opportunity, because we focus on things that, that like family initiatives, we have better work, you know, uh, we have better work Gwinnett and better work Columbus. And so those are the types of things that it's a community-based process. So I, if I can do anything to help the audience understand Understand what side of the continuum that you're on, what side mm -hmm. of the continuum that you're working in, so that it doesn't become so com confusing for those who have a, who has a prison experience. See, I don't I don't use the word returning citizen. People can use that if they choose to, but I choose not to because for me, it has been my experience. When I say I'm a returning citizen, it says I'm in the process of becoming. Mm -hmm. You see, and so I've been out of penitentiary for th for 37 years. So I'm not in the process of becoming, but I have had a prison experience. So I use the terms for those who have those who have experienced an incarceration experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so so understanding the language is what I'm doing. That's just what I'm doing. I'm just trying to expand the language yeah. so that we can kind of figure out where we are on the side of the ball and understand that reentry is not enough. It's not enough to just re-enter society. It is totally not enough. I did that in 1985. It is not enough. We have to be able to have the opportunities to pursue happiness, even though we may not attain it, but we also have the same right to define what happiness is. That's excellent. Tony, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. All right. Y'all take care. Okay. Bye-bye. We will, as usual, link in the show notes to more information about Tony and some of the things we discussed, and I hope you'll check that out. In particular, I hope you'll take an opportunity to learn more about the organizations with which he's affiliated, including the Georgia Center for Opportunity and the great work that they do. As I think back about this conversation, uh, I, I know going, going into it, I was expecting a lot because Tony's a really fascinating person who does just incredible work. But I think I learned a great deal from the conversation. And when I think about what I will take away from this conversation, one of the things will be the discussion we had about how the way we talk about things, how the way we think about things, about challenges in our society, how important that is. That changing the way we use language to talk about people uh, who have been released from incarceration and what they face, how that changes the way we make decisions about policy, how it changes the way we view those people. And I think that's really important. And I think it's pretty easy to overlook. We can get really hung up on doing big things with big outcomes when sometimes the hardest work is to really change the way we talk and the way we think as a result. And I think that's what Tony's been engaged in. And I think that's probably advice and thinking that can apply well beyond the subject of reentry and reintegration. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And if you did, I hope you will take an opportunity to rate and review the podcast. If you do that, more people will know about it, more people can join the conversation, and we can all reach more people 
with ideas of civil discourse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.